Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. All right, uh, fact check. Fact checked. Oh, I'm so annoyed some days with Facebook. They fact checked all kinds of things. Um, And what I find interesting is there's not necessarily like a logical or literal answer to the question of the statement that was made. Um, wherever you are, and it's on, it's kind of, it's kind of a crazy time we're living in. Um, and so shamelessly, we are going to play off of the fact check that you see pop up now and again on your screen and uh, realize that in the body of Christ, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of bad doctrine. There is a lot of, um, let's just call it weird stuff. That people can get into, that people have developed. And uh, so we're going to be talking for the next few weeks about soteriology. If you want to say a big fancy theological word, there's your chance. Turn to your neighbor and say, soteriology. Soteriology. See, look at how fancy you are. Soteriology is simply the doctrine of salvation from the Greek words uh, save, and then the second word is the mass. So to save a mass or save a thing, uh, of course, we're talking about people typically. And soteriology, although it exists in faiths all around, really is a Judeo-Christian idea. It's a Judeo-Christian principle. Um, Like I said, although it exists in other religions, it really, as far as I could tell, more by adaptation than by origination. Uh, And we'll get to that in the message. But it's important to know what it is and what it means. Um, because of the life-changing reality this doctrine should bring to the life of every person who calls themselves a Christian. Uh, So doctrines are not hard to find these days. I'm sure you've noticed there are literally millions of options online. You can find all kinds of people on your TV. You can find all sorts of spin-offs. You can find, I mean, some of it's amazing. Some of it is not. And I always struggle with this part of it, I guess, that, uh, you know, we can discover truth right here in Generations Church in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, testifying to your spirit that what's coming from the pulpit is true. And and then it seems like people wander off and and they start reading something on the internet and three weeks later, they don't believe in what our church teaches anymore. This actually happens. And it drives me nuts and it probably drives every single pastor on the planet nuts. Uh, But you know what? We're still going to teach what the Holy Spirit is leading us to teach, and that is what we do. So, uh, I am unfazed by those things, and move forward with excitement, because God's Word is so rich, it's so good, it's so life-giving, it's so there for everything that we need. It is our portion. Um, So, in the early church, just for your information, this doctrinal question of salvation, of soteriology, it is not a new thing. Okay, there were doctrines of salvation uh, in the early church because there was pagan influence. There was actually humanistic influence. Secular humanism is not a new thing to the world. It's actually very, very old. It's kind of, you might say, been around since the very beginning in a way. Um, but humanistic salvation, it, believe it or not, there is a soteriology to humanism. And that would be something like we can, stay, we can save ourselves and preserve ourselves by ourselves all at the same time which if you think about is really a difficult thing. I mean, if you're in the water drowning, it's hard to save yourself. 
but that's just one thing. Um, some of these doctrines, even through in biblical times, even in the Old Testament, some of them looked similar because shed, the shedding of blood was commonplace. You know, some people get this idea that, that, that Judaism and Christianity are so barbaric because of the shedding of blood, but I want you to know that every human culture that has ever existed has been a part of bloodshedding for different reasons, for different times of place. I mean, at very least to eat. But, uh, but more than that, it is not uncommon for every culture to have a deity that they pray to or worship that they would try to appease with a, with a sacrifice of an animal. This is, a, this is a common theme in humanity. And so um, the, the difference is profound to me. And the difference is, is first going to be established here. And believe it or not, this is just the preamble before we get into the message even. This is like the preamble for the series. Um, but in pagan or non-Judeo-Christian ideologies of what salvation is, now they can look similar because there are things like the shedding of blood. But I want you to pay attention. There is a huge difference between appeasement and atonement. Someone say appeasement. Someone say atonement. Two very important words. And I, and I need you to understand this. The idea of appeasement is what we see practiced in many religions, and even in so-called Christian circles sometimes. We see this idea of appeasement, which would be, I'm going to sacrifice to satisfy or to calm down God or the God, whatever the, whatever the object of worship is. Okay, so uh, Baal and Ashtoreth worship in the Old Testament even went as far as human sacrifice in some cases to appease the gods. In Roman culture, in Greek culture, the appeasement, in Norse culture, it was sacrifices are made to appease the gods. Hey, we had a bad crop season last year. We need a good crop this year. Let's offer the sacrifice of a virgin so that we can have good crops. Appeasement is the main ideology in what we see in most pagan religions. But in, in Christianity, we don't see appeasement. We actually see this other theological word, which is atonement. And I want you to always remember the word atonement, it's very easy to understand because it means to make a person at one with. Atone with, at one with. Okay, so we were separated from God by our sin. The process of atonement by the sacrifice of Jesus brings us to a place where we are once again on appropriate footing with God. Now, this is interesting because in the law of sin and death, in the Levitical law, in, in, uh, in, the, in the first five books of the Bible, where we see God establish the law, we do actually see the need to appease the law, but I want you to understand this theological point. Never was it to appease God. Atonement was always there from the beginning to make man right again with God. And atonement and appeasement are two very different things. Please tell me you understand that. Okay, all right, you're with me still? I'm excited. Here we go. A little more preamble before I get to the message. Forgive me. Hang with me. Uh, okay, so here is the distinct reality. Atonement is that God provides not just a sacrifice, but the best sacrifice. You'll notice that in appeasement, the people are the ones who offer the sacrifice. But in atonement, and in, in, in Christianity, what we see is God himself offering his own sacrifice on our behalf. Again, the difference between appeasement and atonement is pretty stark at this point. 
See, God does not just provide a sacrifice for us, but he provides the best and the highest sacrifice. In fact, you can actually say he even provides the most personal sacrifice because he gave up his one and only, his only begotten son is the theological word that the Bible uses in the book of John, which is very important because begotten means to be taken out of, not sired. Okay? Very, very important. God, in, in, in essential thinking then, God gave a sacrifice to atone for us of himself. Because the blood of goats and sheep were not faithful. They weren't long-lasting. They weren't able to both appease the law and atone for our sin to make us right with God. Very, very important. Now, why does this matter? Well, because the name of the one that God sacrificed in himself is Jesus. And it matters because the scripture teaches that there's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. In other words, what that means is there's only one name under heaven that salvation can be realized through. In Acts 4, 11, and 12, that's what it says. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. Now this is the Bible. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, you might not believe that where you're sitting this morning, and I'm totally fine with that. But I would, just, I would challenge you, I would encourage you to allow the Word of God to examine you this morning rather than you examine the Word of God. Let the Word of God test you. Let the, let the Word of God search your heart this morning. You could have tried to accuse God of being selfish and vindictive in the sacrifice he required for that atonement. And, and you could, because for me as a father, the thought of laying down the life of my son is, is abhorrent to me, quite frankly. I love my kids. I don't want to sacrifice them for you. No offense. I mean, some of you are pretty good people. Some of you I really love. I think some of you are, are great people. But would I really lay down my son for you? Honestly, would you lay down your son for me? Thank you for that emphatic no. I appreciate it. See, it's pretty wild, isn't it? But see, here's the thing that gives it such tremendous value. is not only did God give his son, but God gave his only begotten son. He gave himself, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, as that sacrifice for atonement. It was the best sacrifice because it was him. God, Jesus, the name Jesus, by the way, anybody want to venture a guess what the name Jesus, Yeshua, means? What does it mean? Somebody, I've, I've preached this before, so everybody should know. Yeshua means, Jesus means, Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. Yeshua. His name is salvation. Now, this is kind of fun. Psalm 3, verse 8 says that salvation belongs to the Lord. If something is my belonging, what does that mean? That I can do what I want with it, right? I, if I have, uh, I don't really have anything that I could offer to anyone. But if I did have something I wanted to give you, it would be mine to do that with. I can choose to. Why? Because it's my belonging. It's, my, it, it's in my authority. It's, my, it's under my ownership. And so I can give it to whoever I want to give it to, right? 
Salvation, the Bible says, belongs to the Lord. It's his possession. It is his intellectual property. Okay? Psalm 62.1 teaches that salvation comes from God alone. In other words, the Bible says salvation can't come from anywhere other than God. There is no other option for salvation. It's just from the Lord, from God. And then Jonah 2.9 kind of reiterates that in the realization that salvation can only come from the Lord. Here's how Charles Spurgeon said it. He says, to begin then at the beginning, the plan of salvation is entirely of God. No human intellect and no created intelligence assisted God in the planning of salvation. He contrived the way even as he himself carried it out. All right? And I'm just scratching the surface with this topic, just so you know. Uh, But because of the days we're in, I believe God wants us to dig deeply into the truth of this matter because the study of salvation matters for the world around us. It matters to the people that you're connected to. Salvation matters for your family because today is the day of salvation. Every day since Jesus is the day of salvation without a doubt. And it matters because it is how we will see the fulfillment of the commission that God has given to the body of Christ. It matters because it's what you and I were put here to do. The good works that God created for us to do beforehand, it has to do with our understanding and our ability to share the idea of salvation with other people. And it doesn't really matter where you fit in the, in the predestination free will argument. It doesn't actually matter because we all generally agree in the evangelical world that it is our job to share the gospel with people. It's our, that's our job. We get hung up on other things that distract us from our job, and that is not right. I'm not saying it's not right to have discussion. I'm saying it's not right to have distraction from our job, from what God has called us to do. All right, uh, so I am just scratching the surface because we could actually talk for months. In fact, you could write a master's on soteriology. You, you, You could spend years of your life studying this, and you would still have more to study about soteriology. Uh, but let's just, um, let, me, let me just say this. The religion that most people follow today would be called universalism. Now, now, now this is actually most people. When I say most people, I mean as far as I can tell throughout North America, as far as I can tell through the world. People generally like this idea of universalism that, that there is no technically right way to God but that if he does or she does exist, and he is out there or she is out there some way, that he or she or it is love, and it'll all be fine in the end. That's really what universalism teaches. It teaches that it doesn't matter what you do or how you get there. You should be a good person. And that that should theoretically qualify you. The problem with universalism is it flies directly in the face of what God's Word says is true i.e., there is only one name under heaven by which man must be saved. Just as one example. Um, You know, it'll all be fine because love is love and God, a good God can't be mean enough to allow such a narrow way to himself. Well, that, that contradicts Scripture, and somebody please say amen to this, what contradicts Scripture is untrue. I, I hope, I hope you believe that this morning. And I'm okay if you're on a faith journey where you're learning to trust the Word of God, but I I, I would submit this to you. Trust the Word of God as if it's true. 
even if you don't understand its truth. Because the beautiful thing about Jesus being the Word became flesh is that the more you get to know his word, the more you get to know him, which provides the opportunity for you to realize that his word is true and that he is true, that he is who he says he is. When we take shortcuts and we jump off that trail and we kind of adopt these universalistic, if that's a word even, attitudes or doctrines, it takes us away from the pure truth of Christ. We can't go there. We don't want to be there. We don't want to live there. And, and, and this conversation about soteriology, this is the most pure part of what God is doing for the world. Salvation is what it's all about. The restoration, the atonement of sinful man to a righteous and holy God. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says this, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. The Bible teaches that you and I are found in Jesus, chosen by God in and through Christ before the foundations of the world. In other words, God thought you up and his plan for you was to experience Christ. Now I know there's that whole distracting conversation that can be had about, do we have free will? Let's just save that for another day and understand his will. Which scripture says God's will is that no one should perish. Will people perish? As far as I can tell reading scripture, yes, people will perish. There will be those who do not yield their life to Christ. And there is an eternal punishment called hell for that choice. Some people have the audacity to tell me, well, Jesus never talked about hell. Have you read your Bible? Jesus literally said over the city of Jerusalem, who will save you from the fires of hell? Jesus believed in a literal hell, just so you know. Guys, we're not universalists running around saying, you know, the right way really is Jesus and hopefully everything else works out. That's why it's not working out. That's why we're in the political debacles we're in. Compromise after compromise after compromise in terms of people's morality and ethics and understanding of truth have changed and warped our society. And it's so hard to find truth. Do you find that right now? How hard is it when you do some research to find truth? It's so frustrating. It's so tired. We're all so played out from it. Can I just invite you to read the book that is true from cover to cover? And believe in it and put your hope and put your faith in the Word of God and in His promises for your life. Okay, I think that's the end of my preamble. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, here is the first message in our series on soteriology. It won't be long, I promise. Well, it might be long. I would be a liar if I truly... Anyways, don't worry about it. Just, uh, Just say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to me today? Here is a fact check for you. Well, it's who I am. You ever heard someone say that? Yeah, but that's who I am. Well, well, the Bible says that. Yeah, but that's who I am. Hmm. Well, faith book has fact checked your statement. That's so cheesy. I actually feel a little, I feel like, like throwing up just a little bit, even saying it that way. But faith book has fact-checked this statement. Well, it's who I am. Um, There's a lot of fallacy attached to that statement. 
And, and I'm going to establish why I say that for you. See, people, people everywhere are using the phrase. I mean, I've used this phrase to justify things. Not always bad things either. Sometimes good things, you know. People say, hey, Pastor Trav, that was, you just, you're such a good worship leader. Something I've heard tens of thousands of times in my life. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of just how God made me. It's who I am. That's kind of true. But I also stayed up till 3 a.m. playing a guitar, singing worship songs tens of thousands of times, playing till the blisters under my calluses burst. I have played and bled down the necks of guitars and on piano keys. Literally, blood. It wasn't the stigmata. <laughs> it was just ruptured blisters that were bleeding. Okay, so... so <laughs> So, so when I say it's who I am, it's kind of a guarded statement. Well, it's partly who I am, but there's, see, there's actually a more important question that we got to get to in this discovery of why it's who I am is actually a fallacy. It's who I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God knows who you are. If you came to me today and said, well, pastor, it's who I am, I would be literally, I would be, well, you heard me say this in the message. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. I get it. But God already knows who you are. Better than you do, believe it or not. He knows who you are better than you do for sure. And if I can just be really direct with you this morning and say something really hard, but you can know that I love you and you can love me back and we're all going to preserve the bond of peace and unity together here because, because Jesus loves us all. Let me say the hard thing for you. Who you are is probably what's keeping you separate from God. Just think about this for a moment. Well, it's who I am often used to justify a position in sin. But that's who I am. Yeah, and God knows who you are, and who you are is the problem. Yeah, I know some people might not come back to church. I told you I'd be direct, and I told you you should love me because I love you. Now, here is why I'm saying this. Satan loves to connect your sense of personal identity to sin. He loves doing it to you. Because if he can keep your identity rooted in something that does not honor God, he will always keep separation between you and God. He doesn't have to work very hard at it even. As long as he can keep your identity tied up in wrong thinking, he has you wrapped up and separate from God, at least in part. See, we got to get past this idea that we can yield our heart to God just a little bit at a time. God doesn't want a part of you. He wanted all of you. That's why he gave all of himself. It wasn't just a third of God that went to the cross. It was all of God that went to the cross. They were all there. All three persons in agreement, testifying of the water and the blood. People say things like, well, if God made me this way, how can he still be a good God if he made me bad? Who's heard that argument before? Okay, I'll leave that with you for a moment. How can he be a good God if he made you to be bad? That's the question. Listen, Satan knows full well, full well where your identity and your true value come from. And this is why he's working so hard to keep you from the truth of God's love. Because God's love says something very different about who you are than you might think it does. 
Psalm 51, 1 to 6, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash, all my, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Here's a little side note that we're going to come back to before this series is done. Um, we have this, this tendency in the body of Christ today to talk about my Lord and Savior all the time. And that's not right. It, there, yes, there is a personal relationship that we each have with Jesus. Absolutely. Powerfully true. There is. But you'll notice that scripture refers to that relationship as our Lord. Because once you become saved, you become a part of his body. Yeah. And it becomes a corporate thing as much as it is. In fact, it becomes more of a corporate thing than it is a personal thing, honestly. Yeah. It really is. And that's why you don't see the apostles and the writers of Scripture running around saying, my, my, my Lord, my Lord. Here's what I want to point out right now, though. When it comes to talking about sin, I hear people often say things like, we, our, society, <laughs> How come nobody who has such a personal relationship with Jesus ever wants personal accountability for their sin? Just saying. This actually kind of gets me ruffled, roughed up. I'm, you know, I'm, I might even look a little angry. I'm sure the, the line in my forehead is deepening and you're going, oh boy, pastor's getting really ticked off this morning. Actually, I am. I think as I read Psalm 51 and we see David say, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Blot out my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, my transgression. My sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned. Where is your personal relationship with Jesus when it comes down to what you're doing wrong? And you expect pastors and churches all over this world to dance around the issue. Ooh, we don't want to offend anybody. Well, I got news for you. Jesus is offensive. Jesus offended everybody everywhere he went. He offended his parents at times. Not, not because he was flipping them the bird. But because he was about doing his father business and didn't communicate with them where he was going, and that frustrated them. Don't want to get me started on the religious people. How about the ones he called, the chosen ones, that walked with him? Do you, do you not read how badly Jesus offended them on a regular basis? I mean, <laughs> following the master as one of the disciples would have been the most offendable thing you could do, I think. Can you imagine being around that much perfection, that much glory, that much word of God all the time? Constant offense. That's how I see it when I look at Scripture. See, even if you don't believe this right now, consider this to be true, as I've said before. Even if you're struggling with this, Pastor, I don't know if I'm going along with you with what you're saying. Would you just put your faith this morning in the fact that the Holy Spirit is speaking to men and women of God, and they are speaking what the Holy Spirit says to them, to the body of Christ, to build up, to admonish, to serve, to love the body of Christ. Just put your hope in that and come with me. So even if you don't believe it, consider it to be true so that we can understand truth. Because truth is actually a structure, not just an ideology. 
You and I are sinners from the start, according to what we see David write in Psalm 51. Even in the womb as we are formed, even though there is an undeniable innocence to a baby, and there certainly is undeniable innocence in a newborn child, Scripture teaches us that there is something in the nature of every human being that is bent against the will of God. Now, a lot of people struggle with that, but just because someone struggles with it doesn't make it any less true. Right. And, and I'll just point out to you, if you're a parent, you'll probably wholeheartedly agree with me, that if your baby is so innocent when they're born, so not sinful when they're born, why is it that by the time they are one or two years old, they have willfully disobeyed you already? Why is it that it's so easy for a little child to say mine, no, to hit other kids, to shove and push them away, to fight for the special toy that wasn't special minutes ago, but because someone else has it, suddenly it's the most desirable thing on the planet, and we're all going to have temper tantrums till we possess it. See, you, you might have the argument for me and say, well, pastor, that's because it has been displayed to them. Oh, okay. If all people are good, then who was it that it displayed to them? Where did that come from? Yeah. See, people use this other argument all the time to try to disprove God, but the truth is still going to be true. It was in them. Disobedience is in us at conception. Maybe it's actually genetic. Maybe one day we'll be like, oh, there's the sin gene. Cool. <laughs> Cut that out. Put a goat gene in there. I don't think we should do that. I think it's a bad idea, actually. Uh, but maybe it's, maybe it's in our genetics. I have no idea. But because of the fall of man, we all have a sin nature. Now, this is called the doctrine of total depravity. This is also an important doctrine. Universalists do not believe in depravity, the depravity of man. They believe that the bad stuff, if there even is evil technically in the world, which is insane to me, just look around you if you don't think there's evil in the world. I don't know how to help you. Clearly, there is evil, a lot of evil in this world, and that evil is perpetuated by human beings. Truth. So the doctrine of total depravity asserts that people are, as a result of the fall of man, not inclined or even able to love God wholly with heart, mind, and strength, but rather are inclined by their nature to serve their own will and desires and reject his rule or his lordship. This is why mine and no and hitting are so natural for a little child. And in some cases, full-grown men. <laughs> if you've ever fought your child for a chicken nugget at McDonald's, you should come to the altar for prayer after church today, all right? That's, that's a new level of selfishness, i got to say. So, let me just ask you, if we are, if we're that wretched, if we're that depraved, if we're that sinful that sin's just going to come out of us with, unless we're corrected or guided or taught. Sin is what's going to come out of us. Then who are we that God should love us? As David considered in Psalm 8, who am I that God should even be aware of me? Why would God love us given our propensity for wickedness? We are individually 
in our own sufficiency, left to our own devices, every one of us, sinful in nature. And that nature leaks out into who we are. So the reality of that is what separates us from God. We've all missed the standard. Romans teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect or glorious standard. And that's a standard that the law sets for us. But knowing that men could not meet the standard for his mercy, in his nature, God reveals this plan called salvation. And that's why understanding salvation, that we need to recognize who we are is not as important as whose we are. Galatians 3.23, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Okay? He's using a child services analogy. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now here's the important part. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You are children of God. Verse 29. You belong to Christ. See, if we place our faith in Jesus, we then belong to Jesus. And that's an issue some of us have. That's our authority issue that can be a sin issue for us. Well, I don't really like being referred to as a possession. Well, maybe you misunderstand possession. Maybe you're undervaluing yourself as God's treasured and special possession. Maybe your worldview is impacting you in a negative way with how you understand the word, of, the word of God. See, you're not just a simple possession as in a trinket or a thing, but you are belonging to the Lord as in you are a part of his body now. You are a hand or a foot or an ear or an eye. Or maybe you're a part of the tongue. Maybe you're the toenail. I don't want to be the toenail. That's not the possession of Jesus I want to be. Well, the Bible does say, how lovely are the feet of him that brings good news. So maybe it's not so bad. You've had a spiritual pedicure. And you know what? You are a mighty fine toenail as a part of the body of Christ. <laughs> Listen, we become his possession, and that is not a bad thing. When God looks at us because of Jesus, he sees you and I for who we are for sure. But the best part is that he sees us as his own children. Romans 8 verse 14 starts with this. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. Someone say sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. By which we cry out, Abba, Father, or Daddy God. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So once again, you are sons and daughters. We are his family. We are heirs with Christ. When God looks at you because you have accepted Jesus, you are not a secondary citizen in his kingdom, but you are wearing the righteousness of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. You are clothed in his righteousness. Why? Because you belong to Christ. And this is where it's so important for us to understand whose you are is so much more valuable than who you are. Because when I belong to Christ, when I am His possession, I am under His covering of righteousness. I am under His covering of holiness. I'm under the covering of His Spirit. I'm under the covering of His mind. I have His peace. I have His promise. I have His perseverance. I have His long-suffering. I have His strength. Why? Because I belong to Him. I'm in His body. If something always defines, something is always going to define who you are. I hope you can realize that. Something is always going to define you. And we might think, no, I'm going to define me. Yeah, well, you're tainted. And I promise you that however you define yourself this morning, it's not as good as God wants to define you. It's not as good. You know what I see when I look around me? I see that sexuality defines a lot of people. I'm straight, I'm gay, I'm this, I'm that, I'm blah, blah, I'm all, what? Why does sexuality define someone as a person? It shouldn't. And you know what's funny is when you evaporate all of the divisiveness, actually that's where everybody's heart is at. And do, don't worry, I'm, I'm not slipping off the edge and saying that there are things that the Bible says are sin that are, I'm not, I'm not. I'm just pointing out Sexuality is not a good qualifier of who you are. Wealth defines some people. There's people, their confidence, their self-confidence, their self-assurance lays totally in their wealth. There's some people who are defined by image. There are people who define themselves, this is who I am, and it's, liberal, or it's, uh, sorry, it's politics and it is religion that defines, well, I'm Pentecostal, so what? I'm a Baptist, I'm a Calvinist, I'm, a, I'm an Arminianist. I, who cares? Do you belong to Christ? Good. Now say something that's actually biblical after that. Say something that matters for someone who's unsaved. Don't be caught up. Don't be dragged into divisive arguments. Man, alive. I know people who are actually defined by what they drive. They're all Ford guys. <laughs> Bunch of losers. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You're not a loser if you drive a Ford. You're just broke down a lot. Anyways, um, <laughs> I don't even believe that. I'm just trying to give you a little bit of comic relief. All right? Um, let me just ask you something. Whoever you define yourself as, oh, I define myself by my sexuality. Why should God love that person? Well, I, I literally do define myself by my possessions. It's who I am. I'm rich. Smart people define themselves by their intellect. That's who I am. 
I'm smart. Why should God love you because of that definition? Hmm. It's kind of a trick question. He doesn't love you because of that, even though you might think it's why. Even though you've forgotten that it has nothing to do whatsoever with his motivation to love you. Let me ask you this. How much do you love your own children? Christine, how much do you love your boys? If you had a girl, would you love a girl too? Probably. I, I, think, I think Christine especially. All the mothers. My own mother had four sons. She would have loved it. She thanks God for her daughter-in-laws every day. I'm sure of it. She should because I know my, my daughter-in-law that I gave her is pretty awesome. Um, why do you love your own children? Because they're yours. Well, that sounds like you're making children a possession, Pastor. Oh, I am. I am, in that they are my family, that they are my offspring, that they are born of my seed, the best and the worst parts of me. They're mine. That's why I love them. That's why you love your children. You know what? You all probably love my kids. And I really love all of your kids. But do I love your kids more than my kids? Nope. I don't. Sorry. Now, I think some of your kids are cuter than my kids. But that's because they're all a bunch of smelly teenagers now, and they're not cute like my little, like my little nephew Leif over there, who's just starting to smile, and he looks like a little glowworm. He's just, oh, he's all kinds of, mmm. Remember that stage, parents? Mmm. Listen, we love our children because they are our children. That's why we love them. And I'm sorry, it's not deeper than that. That's why. They're mine. And you love your own because they're yours. And you know what? There are some children who get the blessing in this life of being adopted by loving parents. And guess what happens? By that spirit of adoption, they become someone's. And if you've ever seen it happen, you understand the miracle that takes place, what I'm talking about. But you see, this is why we need to understand how we are defined. By who? We're defined by the one who loves us. And all other things, all the other things in life, when we understand who loves us, whose we are, all the other things that my identity can be based in begin to line up with that truth. If I know who I belong to, whose I am, if that is the first thing that begins to define me, guess what? My sexuality follows suit. My desire for wealth follows suit. Why? Because the definition of who and what I am is in the right order. When we define ourselves by wealth, before we can define ourselves that we are children of God, we end up in an absolute train wreck. Why? Because wealth changes. Inflation changes wealth. Good grief. 
Everything in your life can change in a, notice, a, a moment's notice. Based on what the stock market does, your value goes up and down. Not so when it's in the right order. Because in the right order, when the who is God, and I am his child, and my wealth is following my identity in who he says I am, my wealth doesn't even matter to me because I understand that I'm only holding it for him. The truck I drive, the activities I do. All of those flowing out of a true sense of who I am because of who I belong to. Someone said a moment ago, why does God love a person with such a horrible definition of who they are? Someone, I heard someone say it. Because we're made in his image. Do you want to know what being made in his image makes us? It makes us his. That's why that works. We are His, made in His image by Him and for Him. So just how well does the God who possesses you, who holds you in His hand, the Bible says you are His special, His treasured possession. How well does Jesus take care of His own body? Let me tell you some thoughts about God. Psalm 139, 1-8, the worship team can come back says this, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I am far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. I'll go down to the grave and you're there too. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are both the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, and how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had even passed. How precious, how precious are your thoughts about me, oh God. You know what? Some of you have never believed that. Some of you have never dared to believe the preciousness of God's thought for you. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. Because they outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I wake up, you're still with me. I'm his. That's what defines me. 
I am his because his plan of salvation was always his plan. Well, God brought in salvation because man sinned. No, because God is salvation, man would need to be saved. Can you even comprehend this morning how fully involved he is in your life? Can you dare to believe that he really is that concerned with you? That he actually loves you like that? You see, who I am, whoever I am, is made right by whose I am. The fact, the truth, the reality that I belong to him defines all that flows out of my life. And yes, imperfection can find its way into that from time to time. Sin waits, it crouches at the door waiting for us to forget whose we are. But it doesn't change whose we are. when We put our faith and our hope in Jesus. I want to invite you to pray a prayer. Would you stand? We're going to sing one last song like we always do. But Psalm 139, 23 and 24 just has this great little prayer. We can put it up on the screen if you got it. And as I was finishing my message this morning, I was up at about 4.30, just couldn't sleep waiting on the Lord, anxious about all the stuff that's going on in our world, of course. Elections and regulations and governments and freedoms. and uh. And this little prayer that David wrote screamed at me from the page. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. I want to challenge you to pray that prayer, not just today, but every day this week. Do your devotional. Do your first five. Do your Bible study. Do all the things you normally do. But I challenge you. No, I ask you. No, I, as your pastor, I'm going to, in love, command this of you. Yeah, I can do that. Because I believe the Holy Spirit is giving the command. Every day this week, go to Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, and pray this prayer. And then see what the one who you belong to does in response. Can we read this together? Search me. I guess we can't, so I'll say it and you repeat it. Okay, it's up all together. Let's read this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Jesus, today as we consider what you're saying from your word, 
Holy Spirit, I just pray that what you want us to take away would become so clear, so vibrant, that, Lord, we would realize where we have been defining ourselves by what we do or how we think is the wrong way to define it. And that we would, Lord, today allow ourselves to be defined by who we belong to, that we are your possession. And because we are your possession, you get to say who we are. You get to say what we're capable of. You get to say what we will conquer. You get to say what will be our victory. You get to say what what we will overcome. You get to say what we'll be healed from. You get to say, you get to say, God, you get to say because we are your possession. Jesus, we need you. We love you. We pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. God, this nation needs you. This nation needs you, Lord. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.